You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have Stephen Ezo, Vice President of Global Innovation Policy at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation called ITIF. And we're going to be talking about uh, the U.S. coming out on top again with the world's most powerful supercomputer. It's a story that uh, came out in Wired magazine. So, Stephen, thanks for coming. It's my pleasure. Yeah, so tell me, what, what's your involvement in uh, the ITIF? And then we'll talk about the uh, supercomputer arms race, I guess you can call it. Sure. So the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, ITIF, is a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit, nonpartisan science, technology, and economic policy think tank. We were actually ranked the uh, number one science and technology policy think tank in the world by the University of Pennsylvania Global Go-To Think Tank Index in January of this year. And our mission is to advocate for public policies that drive innovation-based economic growth uh, in the United States and our states and uh, in countries around the world. So we work on a wide variety of, of technology and innovation policy issues, everything from tax and trade and talent to regulation and, um, you know, uh, how government can support the uh, evolution of innovation-based industries and, and technologies. And, uh, of course, within that, uh, high-performance computing is, is an important focus uh, because... Okay. Uh, leadership in uh, you know, the world's most sophisticated, highest power uh, computing systems is vital for a country's economic competitiveness, national security, and the ability to fulfill you know, mission-oriented activities, whether you know, predicting the weather or uh, supporting, uh, uh, looking for the discovery of uh, new cures to, to cancers. That's what I was going to ask you, right? What, what's important about a supercomputer? Is it its computing power? Or is it a symbol of what a country can do? So, you know, high-performance computers are computing systems that, through a combination of processing capability and storage capacity, can rapidly solve difficult multivariate computational problems. So the new uh, computer, uh, uh, the summit that the United States uh, took back leadership from, from China, uh, the fastest computing system in the world, uh, operates at a capacity of uh, 200 petaflops. Um, that's, 200, that's a 200 trillion floating point operations or petaflops per second. Um, and so why leadership in high performance computing matters uh, has a set of answers that are both on, on maybe you'd say the national security and, and kind of the economic competitiveness side of the equation. So uh, first from the national security perspective, the reason that supercomputers were actually kind of originally designed was 
uh, to model what happens in uh, nuclear explosions. Uh, so the original supercomputers were modeling the interactions of 8 billion distinct atoms on a fraction of a second-by-second second basis uh, to model what happened um, in a nuclear explosion. And this was done after you know, we, we, we uh, uh, put, put in place the, the, the nuclear test ban treaties. Um, interestingly enough, uh, it was later found that uh, a large uh, share of the U.S. nuclear arsenal uh, was non-functional uh, because it had not been stored properly, and uh, modeling the oh, wow. computers later on figured this out. So whether it comes to to um, the, the, the nuclear arsenal, whether it comes to uh, missile defense systems, or it comes to cybersecurity, you know, the ability to massively uh, process uh, very complex, you know, modeling and simulation activities uh, is a vital component that uh, high-performance computing brings to the table from a, a national security perspective. Um, equally, uh, with regard to uh, hurricane prediction, uh, weather prediction, uh, storm modeling, um, uh, le leadership in these systems matters. <laughs> so we have the best weather prediction. Um, uh, so, so there's a whole set of mission-oriented and clean energy and, and defense and security and cybersecurity and surveillance, et cetera, um, that matters greatly why a country wants to have the most sophisticated uh, high-performance computer systems. Um, but equally, it matters on, on the commercial side um, because HPC, high-performance computing, essentially represents a foundational technology that enables innovation, that enables modeling and simulation of new products. And if nations are able to provide this kind of meta infrastructure for their companies, it can become a key differentiator in their ability to compete across the global economy. Um, a good example of this uh, is Goodyear, um, the, the tire maker. Um, what, what, what's, what's really powerful about these, these high-performance computers is that they can kind of model these extremely complex scenarios uh, that you would never be able to kind of sit down and design through every element yourself up front. So what you know Goodyear used to do when they would uh, make a tire is they would make a physical prototype. Uh, they would even take several months to make the prototype. They'd go out and they test it on the road for a few months and see how this tire you know reacted um, you know to different driving conditions and then they'd get the feedback and they'd go redesign the tire. And essentially, you know, this is like an eight to twelve month process. But by using these very sophisticated computer systems, they can model how a tire design is going to work on the road uh, with different depth, what have you, um, and uh, do it all essentially on a computer in the laboratory. And so for Goodyear, what they found was that they were able to increase their time to market by 40% and cut their R&D cost by 50% in the development of a new tire. Um, so essentially now now accelerates their innovation cycle times and speed the market so they can bring you know innovative car innovative tires uh, much faster to the market and that gives them a competitive advantage in the global economy so then propagate that out across every industry from aerospace to design of aircraft to uh, identifying uh, new uh, molecular uh, compounds as a basis for pharmaceuticals uh, apply it in, in finance uh, for instance so essentially at a national economy level, the ability to have access to some of these computing uh, capacity uh, now becomes a key economic uh, competitive differentiator. So, how how good are you know really fast computers at modeling all these phenomena? You know, is there a I don't know? Can you encapsulate it in as a general standard? You know, or is it situation dependent completely? Well, so again, now what becomes interesting. Is, is this world we get into 
Uh, so, so essentially, think about high-performance computing as as your processing power, right? Um, it's 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 uh, you know, it's a fast computer. You can run analyses on. You can run models on, right? So now connect that to artificial intelligence, right? Which is a set of algorithms uh, that are uh, consuming data, are being trained on machine learning, are are doing uh, very iterative very rapid kind of discovery processes to refine a, a, a model or a system. Uh, so a great example here um, is a new technology called algorithmic or generative design software. With algorithmic software, the designer of a product inputs the features, uh, constraints, criteria that they'd like, uh, and then the software goes in and runs through tens of thousands of possible designs for that product to come up with the optimal uh, structure. So consider, uh, for instance, uh, uh, aerospace companies like Boeing or Airbus. So when Boeing went to make the, the Dreamliner, the, 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 uh, the 787, um, they essentially found that they were able to need to just design 11 physical prototypes of the cambered wing they were developing um, compared to they had to create 77 for the prior version of the 777 um, because they could do so much more with the modeling simulation process. So essentially, Boeing uh, got an 11-fold increase in speed of, of its design of, of, of the wings of this aircraft. Um, similarly, um, if you think about the, the bulwarks, the partitions on an airplane, Airbus used generative design techniques and they said, okay, we want a, a partition, a bulwark that is 40% lighter, that's 50% stronger, that's fire resistant, right? Um, and so they entered it into the, the software and it spits out a, a design that actually looks like the, the bones of a bird uh, because long ago, kind of evolutionary biology figured out that's actually the, 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 the optimal structure for, 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 for you know, varying weight. Um, and so now this new partition that Airbus has uh, deployed across an entire fleet of aircraft, uh, it can uh, save 405,000 uh, tons of CO2 a year for, for an airline fleet, and that's the equivalent of taking 100,000 cars off the road. So we, what you see when you start to deploy these technologies is you're seeing numbers uh, to answer your question, uh, yeah, like you know, 40% increase in efficiency, um, uh, you know, 25 to 40% uh, increase in, in design speed and time to market. Uh, uh, so the 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 combination now of a whole set of advanced computing structures like AI, like quantum coming now, like high performance computing, um, are really going to substantially transform um, the competitive capacity of, of a wide range of industries that are able to avail themselves of these technological systems. At what level do you get a lot of these benefits? Does it have to be the supercomputer level that, you know, maybe only a government would own? Or, you know, in general, is there a level of computing that's accessible to a lot of different companies or maybe people that would be able to do a lot of these new technologies? I, I guess there are a couple of points to make there. Um, one reason that national leadership in these systems matters um, is because there is such complementarity and, and symbiosis between um, the design of the systems and the design of the software that's running on them to be able to answer these questions. So uh, the kind of, kind of supercomputers work in, in cores or a compilation of different computing cores that are massively parallel. Um, 
So, you know, another good example was that researchers used high-performance computing uh, to develop a model that simulated the function of a human heart down to the cellular level. So they built a system that essentially modeled every single cell within the human heart and how they interact with one another, um, how they uh, um, react to new uh, influences, external stimuli like, like, like drugs, you know, pharmaceuticals enter into the system. Um, and they essentially divided uh, the heart tissue into a supercomputer's 1.5 million cores. Um, so the, the point here um, is that there is such a, a, a key relationship between a nation's ability to have access to the computing systems and also the designers and people writing the software to, to make effective use of those systems. Um, and for that reason, we would, con we would contend that um, high-performance computing use and adoption is equally important to production at a national level, right? So you need to have both sides of the equation. Now, to answer your question about kind of smaller businesses, um, clearly, you know, a, a 500-person manufacturer in Ohio is not going to be able to have a supercomputer super um, in their data center. Uh, but it's nice when they have specific challenges they need to address, like trying to look at a computational fluid dynamic problem, uh, that they have the ability to access um, uh, you know, a, a, a supercomputer for a particular job. And so um, there have been several initiatives. Um, for instance, we have something called the Digital Manufacturing and Design Innovation Center in Chicago, Illinois. It's now called MXD. Um, but that's kind of a shared national resource that SMEs can tap into, and, and they can turn to it to, um, you know, rent some time out on a supercomputer. Uh, countries like Korea have made it a national platform um, uh, that that there's 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 this uh, kind of online system, kind of like you know, you know cloud-based supercomputing that you can tap into and and uh, uh, use that type of facility on a remote basis. So yes, creating pathways and mechanisms that smaller companies in an economy can have access to these technologies when needed um, is is also a vital area of of ensuring competitiveness in, in high-performance computing. And, uh, you know, when countries make these computers that push the limits, does that translate to better technology for all computers? Or is it more of a standalone achievement that is just, a, you know, again, a point of pride and national prowess? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, developing these systems requires tackling challenges like heat dissipation, like well, uh, internet connectivity, right, and the optim optimal kind of, you know, data transmission and and and. and, and cabling and, and networking, you know, within these very complex computing systems. So and there's no doubt that there's spillover effects that, that are learned um, and um, kind of push forward the, uh, you know, the, the, the frontier of the technology that, you know, ultimately will find expression and commercialization. Actually, one of the very interesting things about the, the supercomputing uh, is that it has turned out to play a very impactful role uh, in, in trying to elongate Moore's Law. Uh, of course, Moore's Law being the, uh, the notion that uh, the uh, number of transistors or, or chips you can fit on a transistor uh, can doubles every 18 months, right? Um, but we've begun to, to hit the physical limits of Moore's Law as we move down to like 10 nanometer and 8 nanometer chips. And so now kind of chips are, are three-dimensional in design. Um, so you have to use kind of complex geometries to, to pack more uh, you know, processors onto a chip, right? Um, and actually, the capacity of supercomputing to um, model these new designs for your basic um, 
uh, CMOS chipset uh, has, has actually been a, a key differentiator. So uh, I guess in a number of, of avenues or pathways, you are seeing spillover effects uh, from, from pushing uh, forward the frontier of, of supercomputers. Is there, so what's the fastest computer in the world right now? And is there, um, I don't know, are we close to hitting a level that will unlock the ability to solve particular problems? So the fastest one now, as I understand, is the summit. Um, at the Department of Energy's Oak Ridge Lab in Tennessee, uh, that surpassed uh, China's Titan um, for the fastest computer. Um, and right now we're at 200 petaflops. Um, I'm sorry, the, the the excuse me, the the summit surpassed the American Titan um, uh, as the fastest U.S. computer, uh, whereas the fastest Chinese computer before. Uh, had been the Tihani 2, uh, which was the one that Summit passed as the as the fastest overall uh, supercomputer in the world. Um, so we're at about 200 petaflops now. Now globally, the race is on to get to exascale com- supercomputing, uh, and exascale would be a supercomputer capable of 100 petaflops of processing power, uh, and that is the equivalent of one billion billion floating point operations per second, uh, if that can be realized. Uh, a number of nations, Japan, Korea, European Union, uh, United States, China, are are investing to, to get first to exascale computing. Uh, from what I understand today, the 2022 to 2024 timeframe is where that hurdle might be reached. And yeah, I mean the, the 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 sets of applications that one would be able to run on an even faster computer, um, especially in a world of, of uh, artificial intelligence and and uh, you know even quantum computing applications would you know potentially open tremendous new doors, uh, especially in areas uh, like in the, for the life sciences where you're you know, you're modeling uh, you know chemical and biological interactions uh, in, in the human body, uh, you know propulsion. You know, Space travel, uh, any number of, of, of applications that an exascale computer could sufficiently or, or, or really to tremendously unlock. Right, so there's no magical level that uh, if we get to that, you know, we may be able to solve uh, very different problems than we can solve right now. It's not as okay. I just wonder. Yeah, no, I, well, I'm just, some, I, you know, there's some goal that uh, everyone says, oh, if we can get to this level, we think it's going to be a huge uh, game changer. Uh, you know, one, one and listen. I, it, it, I, I, I don't think the answer is. There's a set of questions that we would not possibly be able to answer at a 500 petaflop level. That once we get to the exascale level, that only at that point would we be able be able to apply each species system to answer it. I, I don't think it you know, quite works like that. You know, it, yes, when we get to an exascale system, uh, we'll be <laughs> able probably to answer more accurately, more, more, more quickly, uh, run more models uh, to get to the more optimal answer. But I don't think the, 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 the question set that can be applied or posed to supercomputing isn't, isn't necessarily, can't be done uh, at, at 500 petaflops as opposed to exascale, it'd be, certainly be better done um, with a more sophisticated system. Uh, and one of the big applications here, of course, is going to be climate change. Uh, uh, the number of, of factors that go into, you know, 
the, even just weather prediction, but let alone long-term climate change modeling, um, is 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 going to be a, a key potential uh, application area for for far more sophisticated uh, computing systems. All right, and then um, I don't know. Have uh, have governments noticed that having the fastest computer in the world changes the dynamic of how uh, they're treated on the world stage? Or you know, is it really that important, or is it just kind of again a point of pride to have the fastest? Certainly, uh, it's it's a national talking point. Uh, it's a national point of pride. Uh, but uh, you know, as I said, it does have you know very real uh, significance and implications for you know every domain of, of national security, economic impediments, and and uh, you know kind of social welfare. I think you know you know on the on the, on the, on the national security side. Um, one of the other key applications of supercomputing is for cyber intrusion detection, um, uh, and, and this is obviously a, a vital concern of, of all countries. Um, uh, we're getting to a point now of, of uh, even some, uh, you know, applications of quantum computing for quantum tunneling for you know the ability to you know transmit information in a way that the uh, uh, effort to uh, hack the system would be immediately recognizable. Um, so on, on a whole set of domains around defense applications, uh, high-performance computing leadership matters completely and absolutely. Um, and it's not just a point of national pride, but it's a point of national security. Um, and, and then, you know, I mean, you know, business is about, you know, the innovating more quickly, innovating more cost-efficiently, designing better products, getting to market faster, being able to differentiate yourself in the global economy, um, and uh, there's no question that uh, uh, you know Procter and Gamble uh, estimates that um, uh, its ability to uh, use supercomputers at the national laboratories um, to th- address computational flow dynamics problems in diapers was worth a billion dollars to it. Uh, that's just one concrete industrial example of, of a company that uh, uh, you know found tremendous value and and uh, you know innovation and economic potential from tapping into HPC. So uh, it is a point of national pride, it, uh, but it's also a, a point of, of national competitiveness and 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 and, and technological leadership. And uh, that's why we wrote. I should mention a report in 2016 called The Vital Importance of High-Performance Computing to U.S. Competitiveness, where we, we kind of walk through many of these examples. Uh, we also point out that um, you know all of our major competitors are investing you know hundreds of millions to to the billions. Um, South Korea uh, has got a national supercomputing strategy. India has got a national supercomputing mission. European Union's got uh, Exynest. Uh, Japan's got a flagship 2020 program. All these programs are, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in investments to, you know, develop computing systems in their countries that um, play important roles in supporting, you know, economic competitiveness and national security. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's it's a serious enterprise. What's the, you know, what's the reality of quantum computing? Is it, uh, I don't know, is it here? Is it feasible? And is it really going to make a whole new class of computers that? Are a lot faster, orders of magnitude faster than what's out there. Yes, um, this quantum computing is here today. Uh, for instance, um, there's a company in Vancouver uh, that has already uh, developed a 2,000 qubit quantum computer that uses a process called quantum annealing. Uh, that is very effective at solving kind of high-low optimization problems, so useful in, in um, 
kind of uh, of a number of financial applications, logistics, uh, route design. Um, uh, IBM now offers uh, even cloud-based quantum computing. Uh, they have a, a you can go online and uh, uh, upload your query to a 50 qubit quantum computer. Um, Bristlecone, Google are also working on kind of 100 qubit quantum computers. Um, the companies popping up now in Australia and China and Germany. Uh, so yes, there are commercially available quantum computers on the market today. Um, what is going to be fascinating about quantum computers uh, is they'll offer even far more massively parallel computational power than high-performance computers uh, because they essentially will work in a different design uh, that taps into principles of parallelism and and uh, uh, asymmetry, uh, going back to uh, you know Werner Heisenberg <laughs> in the start of, 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 of uh, you know quantum physics. So essentially, it uh, leverages the the uh, fact that uh, uh, an electron can be at uh, you know different points uh, in time around an atom, and if you can probability design that, then essentially a quantum computer can hold instead of just double holding a zero in one state, it can hold either a zero, a one, and or a one. So it's kind of you know, almost infinitely more um, capable of, of the handling parallel of the computation simultaneously. Um, some of the applications of quantum computing potentially uh, will be staggering. Um, they are have the potential to be uh, um, extremely sensitive, um, and an application that I as I've read is already in existence uh, is that the United Kingdom has deployed uh, quantum technologies in such a way that it can detect the quantum signature of a submarine operating underwater. So, uh, in theory, uh, quantum gravimeters uh, can instantaneously identify the location of every submarine in the world. China claims that it has uh, deployed a radar system that uh, uses quantum principles, quantum computing, uh, that can detect stealth aircraft. Um, I, I, I'm not quite sure they've nationally deployed it, but they, they claim that they have that capacity. Um, China is has a 2,000-kilometer a uh, quantum computing tunnel between Beijing and Shanghai where they transmit uh, kind of official government correspondence in a secure way, as I understand, uh, through this, this quantum tunnel. And so as I mentioned earlier, what's interesting, um, your, your listeners are probably familiar with uh, Heisenberg's cat. Um, the, and the, the, the whole point of the... The, the, the Schrodinger's the, cat? Excuse me. Yeah, Schrodinger's cat based upon the, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, excuse me. Um, but that being that, the kind of the uh, the act of observation kind of reveals the position of the electron was the central point of, uh, and then the so point about you know Schrodinger's cat is, is is the cat alive or dead? Well, it depends on you know w when you look at it. But essentially, because of the act of observation forcing that electron to disclose you know its location and spin, uh, that same technique can be applied in principle that you could have a communication system that would be 
unhackable, or at least that the effort to penetrate the system would instantaneously reveal the active intrusion, and so you'd be automatically able to detect, um, uh, you know, in, any effort to, to hack into a system. So what quantum computing could, in theory, give us the ability to do uh, is to uh, hack uh, many of the existing security protocols we have today, kind of based on 100. Uh, I guess 24-bit encryption. Um, so uh, we'd have the ability to to uh, uh, de decrypt most uh, encryption systems today and simultaneously create a whole new architecture of one that, that couldn't be hacked. Uh, so from a national defense perspective, uh, quantum computing uh, will have tremendous applications, you know, as it will from the commercial side, um, you know, with the ability uh, to you know handle extremely you know complex uh, multivariate. Uh, computational problems in real time. Well, very good. Um, anything that's coming in the near future that, uh, again, you're super excited about it? Is it you know quantum computing in general? Is it uh, again quantum secure systems? What uh, I don't know, anything special that uh, you haven't spoken about? Well, I think one thing to mention is it's encouraging that the United States has gotten serious uh, about developing a national quantum computing strategy. Um, last uh, over the winter here, uh, the U.S. Congress passed legislation uh, to create an uh, American National Quantum Computing Initiative. Uh, uh, sets, sets up a whole uh, uh, kind of National Quantum Computing Coordination Office, uh, uh, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, uh, going to create centers of quantum computing application and excellence in various government agencies like the National Science Foundation, Department of Energy. Uh, increase uh, available funding for uh, you know PhDs studying these fields of computer science uh, like AI like quantum computing. Um, this mirrors what uh, other nations have done. Uh, uh, Canada, United Kingdom, European Union all have kind of national you know, quantum computing strategies and initiatives, um, and uh, it's important that the with this action uh, the United States has taken a concerted step to. Uh, align government and, and agencies and industry um, towards um, ensuring that we're making the requisite research investments and training the next generation of, of scientists, engineers, and uh, creating structures to collaborate with industry to uh, design and, and, and develop and deploy these technological systems. Well, very good. Uh, Steve, what's the best way for people to find out more about you know, supercomputers and ICIF? The best way to find out more about the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation is to visit our website, uh, www.itif.org. Uh, all of our research and publications are available online at that website. Um, it includes reports that we've written, as I mentioned, the vital importance of, of high-performance computing. Um, we've got several presentations and, and uh, uh, short papers on the website there as well about you know quantum computing uh, applications as well as a primer on the types of policies countries have implemented to launch uh, quantum computing initiatives. Um, uh, those, so that's a nice set of resources. Uh, the Economist did a recent technology quarterly on quantum computing. As you may know, they do deep dives into, into, into different types of technology every quarter. Uh, that's a wonderful resource, a lot of good articles on commercial and, and uh, defense applications. Um, Wired has in, a nice piece as well out recently on, on the current state of quantum computing. 
so those would be two immediate resources to direct your listeners to to, to find out more information about this uh, really uh, uh, wild and intriguing new uh, computing architecture. That's great. Well, Steve, thank you for coming on the call. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.